Welcome to the Valley Brook Community Church Podcast, and thank you for joining us online today. You're about to hear a message from our current series this Christmas season, RSVP. To watch any of our previous messages or find all listening platforms, we encourage you to visit www.valleybrook.cc forward slash on demand. Enjoy. Good morning, everyone. See, I was the lucky one today because I found out three hours ago that I was speaking. So I had a lot more time to prepare. So these are Clark's words written, my words spoken, but really they're all about Jesus. Um, let's just open in prayer. Father, here at Valley Brook, we do focus on you and we focus on your son. And now the world and our society focuses on him a little bit more during December as we celebrate Christmas. So I just pray that these wouldn't just be stories, but these would be who we are in relation to you through your son, who had to be born in order for him to die so that he could be raised from the dead so that we could be in heaven with you. So just use me, use these words, and just uh, speak to whoever you want to speak to this morning. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So God definitely has a sense of humor, because who would know that I am one of the most serious ones on the stage compared to Peter and Brian? That's just weird. Um, and I just want to give a plug to Brian because I am really looking forward to what he's going to bring to Valley Brook and to this role. Because um, I think it's something we've been lacking is how do we take people and just get them deeper. And I'm excited knowing a little bit what I know about him. I'm really looking forward to seeing how he can help us just grow and become even more effective. All right. So again, these are this is Clark's message. I had an hour or two to put it into my own format. So we'll see how this goes. It's a lot of feedback. So as we all know, not every event happening in life is open to everyone. In fact, some events are so exclusive that you have to receive an invitation to attend and to participate in the event. Think about things like attending a coronation for a king or getting a backstage pass to a Taylor Swift concert, which I don't understand any of that, or participating in a professional-level sporting event. And it could go on and on, but there are certain events, and I don't know if you can think of some, that you'd have to receive an invitation to. Does anybody here play golf? Yes, we got a great Pentecostal over there, Karen. <laughs> Did you know that the only way somebody can get to play in the Masters is if you get a personal invitation? On the screen behind me, what I'm told, there's an invitation. This is what it would look like if you were invited to play at Augusta National and play in the Masters. It's a fancy engraved invitation. They go out every year to the top golfers in the world. And there's a little down in the bottom left corner, there's a little RSVP, which means you have to respond. Otherwise, you're not coming. So last December, Scott Stalling, he was a realtor and an amateur golfer in Atlanta, Georgia. Well, he was surprised when he opened his mail and there was one of these invitations addressed to him. However, he quickly realized that there was a mistake during the delivery and the processing of the letter because it was intended for a PGA Tour winner who had his same name. And to further complicate it, their wives had the same name, and they both at one point had a residence in the same town. So you can kind of understand how the, the Augusta people made that mistake. So when Scott, the realtor, not the golfer, figured out what happened, he sent a message to Scott, the pro golfer, and said, hi, Scott, my name is Scott Stallings as well, and I'm from Georgia. I received a FedEx package today from the Masters inviting me to play in the Masters tournament in April of 23. I am 100% certain this is not for me. 
I play, but wow, nowhere near your level. It's a very nice package, complete with everything needed to attend. I think they have some confusion because of our names, our wives' names, and the geographical location. I am more than happy to send a package to you. So Scott the Realtor sent the package to Scott the Golfer, and then Scott the Golfer invited Scott the Realtor to play a practice round with him before the Masters tournament, and the two couples had dinner together. And obviously, Scott Stallings the Golfer sent his RSVP, his RSVP back to Augusta to accept the play, and he actually came in 26th. So all this month, we're talking about the invitation God sends to the individuals we read about in the stories surrounding the birth of Jesus, like Jenna just read. God invited them, and he invites us to participate in his plan for salvation through the world and the establishment of the kingdom of God. So let me remind you that God's invitation to us, they don't come engraved in stationaries or in fancy boxes or in fancy letterhead. In fact, his invitations don't come to us even in the form of questions. They come to us in the form of commands. But before you say we have no choice but to accept the invitation, that's not true. We still have the freedom and the choice to accept and follow through or to decline God's commands. So last week, we looked at the invitation that God had sent to Mary. This week, we're going to look at the invitation that God sent to Joseph. So we already know that God invited Mary to bring the Son of God into the world, and she accepted that invitation. Not surprisingly, when she told Joseph she was pregnant, he didn't believe her story. So God sent an angel to Joseph in a dream with this invitation. And this is from Matthew 1, verses 20. Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid or take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Just put yourself in Joseph's place for a minute. Can you imagine what he was thinking? Before he had that dream and he heard the news from his fiance, he was probably devastated. Right? She confesses that she's pregnant, but then she comes up with this outlandish story that she's still a virgin. She didn't cheat on him but she became pregnant through the power of God. Now, Joseph probably trusted and loved her, but that's still kind of crazy, would you agree? At this point, he must have thought that Mary was not only unfaithful, that she was having some kind of mental breakdown. And then Joseph had another dream. And it would appear that he didn't question the authority of that dream, but he accepted God's invitation. But by accepting that, he's going to have a lot of implications in his life. Because at some point in the pregnancy, it's going to become obvious and difficult to hide that Mary is pregnant and they're not yet married. So everyone's going to assume that they sinned. As one writer notes, agreeing to marry an already pregnant woman would have surely cast doubt on his own innocence. Many probably believed it was either Joseph that impregnated Mary before wedlock or that someone else had. Of course, either possibility would have left Joseph with a social stigma that he would undoubtedly carry for the rest of his life. In fact, for Jesus' entire life, most of the public assumed that Joseph was his father. So to obey God's invitation would give Joseph a reputation as a man who disobeyed the Jewish law. So let's take a look at how Joseph responded to God's RSVP. In a just-the-facts style, the Bible describes Joseph's response to God's invitation this way. 
from Matthew 1. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him, and he took Mary home as his wife. Joseph responded with obedience, and he did what the angel commanded. But what Scripture doesn't tell us is how Joseph and Mary reconciled the fracture that this supernatural pregnancy must have caused between them. Scripture does hint into how Joseph would have reconciled with Mary so that together they accepted God's unique invitation to both of them. In verse 19, it says, Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. So first, this tells us that Joseph was faithful to the law, which is God's word. And second, it tells us something about his compassion for others. When Mary revealed to Joseph that she was pregnant, telling him this incredible story about being impregnated by the Holy Spirit, though he was devastated, he apparently did not treat her harshly. He must have been reeling from what seemed to him like a betrayal, yet he responded with care and grace towards Mary. And how do we know that? Well, it's established that Joseph was faithful to the law, the Jewish law called the Torah, which consists of the first five books. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And as a faithful Jewish man, he knew the law, and he knew in the book of Leviticus what the penalty was for adultery. And from Leviticus 20, it says, If a man commits adultery, both the adulterer and the adulteress are to be put to death. This was a death penalty that would be carried out by stoning. So you can imagine what's going through his head, because he's thinking everyone's going to assume there was some adultery going on. So he sought to end the betrothal by the only means possible, divorce. And if that sounds odd, just for some historical context, back in the first century, an engaged or a betrothed or betrothed, I'm not sure how you say it, couple, they were legally binded as if they were married in today's terms. So the only way to break off an engagement or a betrothal was through divorce. And that was the route that Joseph was planning on taking quietly to try to prevent her from being publicly disgraced, or worse, stoned. So I want you guys to think about Joseph's response. He was obedient to God's word. When God told him that Mary was pregnancy was supernatural, as hard as that must have been for him to comprehend, he obeyed God. He obeyed what God invited him to do. He realized that Mary had not committed adultery, Thus, there were no grounds for divorce or for the penalty that the Torah prescribed, death. And at some point, he must have realized that what God was inviting him to do would protect the woman he loved and her baby and to see God's plan come to pass. Certainly, Mary shared with Joseph what the angel had said about this baby. He will be very great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his ancestor David, and he will reign over Israel forever. His kingdom will never end. So Joseph did understand that this baby was destined for greatness. And if you read the entire um, Gospel of Matthew, after the angel stops speaking, Matthew reminds the readers that this virgin birth fulfilled the messianic prophecy from the book of Isaiah. And he wrote, quoting the prophet Isaiah, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. And the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel which means God is with us. So Joseph was faithful to the law, and I believe that he also knew the words of the prophets. Probably not in as much detail as the rabbis, but being a good Jewish man of the time, he would have been familiar with 
a lot of what Isaiah said. So after this dream with the angel's explanation of Mary's pregnancy, he must have realized that this pregnancy and coming birth fulfilled this messianic prophecy. With all this in mind, Joseph understood that he was being invited to participate in something bigger than himself and bigger than he could comprehend. And he responded by obeying God's will. When you read through the Bible, Joseph doesn't get a lot of attention. We don't read a lot about him. He doesn't show up in the Gospels at all after Jesus' childhood. And in fact, he doesn't, he's not even mentioned in the Gospel of Mark. Scholars believe that he must have died sometimes before the crucifixion because when Jesus was on the cross, he asked the disciple John to take care of his mother, which would have indicated that she didn't have a husband. What we know about Joseph is that he took God's invitation to be a part of God's plan for the world very seriously because he continually obeyed God. As God instructed him, he took the child as his own son and named him Jesus. Following the teaching from God's word, after the birth of Jesus in Jerusalem, Joseph and Mary took Jesus to the temple in Jerusalem, dedicating him to God with the giving of the appropriate offering as prescribed in the Torah. Because again, he was faithful to the Torah. After the Magi visited Joseph, Mary, and Jesus, God again spoke to Joseph in a dream. And the Bible tells us that an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod's going to search for the child to kill him. So in the middle of the night, Joseph took Mary and Jesus. They fled to Egypt where they stayed until King Herod died. And in case you're wondering, the shortest distance from Bethlehem to the Egyptian border was about 40 miles. That's a long way to walk. In his gospel, Matthew reminds us that Joseph's obedience led to fulfillment of a messianic prophecy that God would call his son. Then when King Herod dies, another angel appears in a dream to Joseph saying, get up, take your child and his mother and go to the land of Israel. For those who are serving or are trying to take the child's life are dead. So Joseph again is obedient to God, and he takes his family back to Israel, and then following another warning in a dream from God, he eventually settles his family in Nazareth, which again fulfills another piece of the prophecy that the Messiah would come from Nazareth. So Joseph's responding to God's invitation with obedience by saying yes several times. He followed God's word. He followed what God said to him through those supernatural dreams. Writing about obedience in Joseph, one writer concludes, obedience to God does not always look like how we would want it to look. It does not always make sense. Sometimes obedience to God looks like breaking social norms and trusting that God is faithful and will guide us, even when things do not make sense. It was because of Joseph's deep, enduring faith that he was obedient to God, regardless of the cost of his, to his reputation. Now, of course, God also invites us to be obedient to him. So let's move on and talk about that. In today's culture, I'm afraid that many people have reduced believing in Jesus to just being a ticket to heaven. People think all I have to do is believe in Jesus and I'm good. I mean, certainly we have verse John 3:16, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. But what we need to be careful of and we need to understand that believing means following and following means obeying the teaching of Jesus. 
So when Jesus gave us the Great Commission, which he gave to his disciples, but also applies to us from Matthew 28, he said, teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you. Now, I want us to understand that Jesus' command wasn't about legalism or some type of working your way to heaven idea. It was about relational faithfulness. When Israel was constantly disobedient to the teaching of Scripture and worshiped other gods, God called their actions adultery. They were being relationally unfaithful to God. At one point in his ministry, when he was teaching of what it means to follow him, Jesus called the people of Israel an adulterous and sinful generation. He did that because they weren't being obedient to God. In that same passage, Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, this is from Mark chapter 8, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? Jesus calls us to be his disciples. That means we follow him and his teachings. When he says to deny oneself, he does not mean just to do without something or even many things. It's not asceticism. That's Clark's word, not mine, so I don't know what that means. It's not self-rejection or self-hatred, nor is it even disowning a particular sin or group of sins. It means it's to renounce the self as the dominant element in your life. It's to replace the self with God in Christ as the object of your affection. It's to place the divine will before your self-will. When Jesus says, take up one's cross, this reflected the first century practice of making the condemned person carry the horizontal piece of the cross that they'd be executed on. Commentator James Brooks writes, when martyrdom ceased to be common, cross-bearing properly became a symbol of following Jesus in sacrificial service. The concept should never be cheapened by applying it to an enduring some irritation or even a major burden. It's closely related to self-denial, involving a willingness to give up everything dear in life and even life itself for the sake of Jesus. It's a willingness to suffer for Jesus and for others. And then Brooks concludes, such a concept of discipleship is so radical that many contemporary Christians in the West have difficulty relating to it. But let us try our best, see how we can relate to this. Jesus goes on to talk about the sacrificial nature of following him. Letting go of our will to follow his will is losing our life. But it's not really the evidence that we are following him, and thus it's the fruitful evidence of our salvation. It shows we are obedient to his will. So let's pretend that tomorrow it becomes illegal to be a Christian, which in a lot of places around the world it is. But let's pretend it, it happens here in Connecticut. You're arrested on the suspicion of being a follower of Jesus. Would there be enough evidence to convict you? Again, let me stress, I'm not talking about legalism or trying to earn your salvation by doing good deeds. I'm talking about would your life reflect that you're being obedient to God's will? Would your interactions with other people demonstrate you're a follower of Jesus? Would your use of your time reflect that you're a follower of God's will? How about your money, how you use your money? Would your sex life reflect a commitment to following God's will? 
Would your speech and language reflect that? Would your work life reflect a commitment to following God's will in your life? Oh, would the way you drive reflect a commitment to following God's will? And we could go on and on. The bottom line is this. God has given every single one of us an invitation to obey him as Christ followers. And as I said earlier, how we respond to God's invitation in our lives is about relational faithfulness. I really like that word. So think about how this one statement from Jesus and how you live it out. He said, this is from John 14, if you love me, you will obey my commands. If you love him, how will you respond to God's invitation to follow him? So to kind of wrap it up, if you're a follower of Jesus, I'm sure a lot of this makes sense. But if you're not a follower of Jesus, you've just been given a front row seat to what it means to have a relationship with Jesus and God. God knows every one of us, even if we don't know him or even believe in him or his son, Jesus. But not only does God know us, he wants to have a relationship with every one of us. God desires for those who don't believe in him to come to believe in him and to enter into a faith relationship with him. If the person I've just been talking about sounds like you and you'd like to enter in a relationship with God right now, you can. But here's what you need to know. The Bible tells us that God loves us and wants a relationship with us. But unfortunately, our sins make it impossible to have that relationship with God. Our sins require a penalty be paid, but there's nothing we can do to pay that penalty on our own. So God sent Jesus to pay for our sins. And if we believe in Jesus and we confess and ask for forgiveness, God will forgive us. And we can enter into that relationship with him and receive the promise of eternal life. So if you'd like to do that, we can simply do that by talking to God. So I'm going to ask you guys to bow your heads, close your eyes, and pray silently with me. If you don't know him and you want to, pray these words. If you know him and you want to recommit or apologize or do anything, now's the time to do that. Dear God, I know that I'm a sinner and I ask for your forgiveness. I believe that Jesus Christ is your son. I believe that he died for my sins and you raised him to life. Today, I want to trust him as my savior and follow him as my Lord from this day forward. Guide my life and help me do your will. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.